Hello and welcome to Trust Issues, the show where we take a deep dive into the minds of some extraordinary guests to hear about the trust challenges they've faced and how they've overcome them. They need to understand that the most helpful thing you can say to a young person is that you don't know, that no one really knows, Mm. and that what we are doing is working our way through. It's like you will construct your realities, but you you are constructing them, you're building these things. It's not like there's a truth that you have to know and that mm. there's a kind of ladder that you have to climb. There's an awful lot to be gained from just exploring and playing and testing. If you struggle with doubt, admitting you don't know, or want to understand more about the experience of gender dysphoria, I think you're going to find this episode fascinating. T's work is actually quite hard to describe because it intentionally doesn't fit in any conventional boxes. She runs Google's Creative Lab in Australia, where she helps artists, writers, and all kinds of performers push the boundaries of their work. She's won a prestigious Peabody Award and collaborated with world-class creative institutions, including the Royal Shakespeare Company, the London Symphony Orchestra, and the renowned film director Ridley Scott. One of the many things I love about T is how she has fully embraced the magical effect uncertainty can play when we welcome it into our lives, into our work, creativity, leadership, even our perspective on the world. So welcome, T. Thank you. I thought maybe the place we would start is where we reconnected, which was... Yeah, I know, because it's the best story. (laughs) (laughs) I was getting on a plane from LA to Sydney, Mm -hmm. and I was feeling a little bit like oh god another long haul flight mm-hmm. and I have this thing where I travel that I travel in the same awful daggy black tracksuit uh, with a hood because I like to just sort of cocoon myself and also because I get really dirty so no one can see it in black and I was taking out my lens putting on my glasses about to put my headphones on sending the signal of do not talk to me and then I looked over and you were wearing the most beautiful cream silk suit and I thought how on earth is someone going to travel for 14 hours in a cream silk suit and it was just a question that started going through my mind and then I started looking at you realizing that I knew you but I couldn't place where I knew you from and this was really bothering me because I am very bad at names but I can always place faces and that was my first two to five minutes of sitting. I think we were on Etihad Airways. Mm-hmm. That was my first experience of the opening of the story. Okay, so that's completely different to mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting. I have no idea what I was wearing. Um, but I, I remember sitting next to you and, and you kind of getting on in front of me and thinking, that she's so classy. <laughs> <laughs> she's totally ready for this flight. She looks completely set and poised and ready. And why can't I look that poised and put together? And then you said something nice about my jacket. And I said, I really like your shoes. And then that was the next point where we should have stopped and gone and put our headphones on. And then one of us clearly said something like, why are you here? And then we actually got into a discussion about what we did. And it turned out we did the same things. And I'm face blind, so I had no idea who you were. And for me, the whole conversation was utterly fascinating because it then turned into a game of who would work out that we'd actually 
studied together and we're, we're quite good friends like we know each other really well um and that over the course of 20 years you can kind of i mean i had clearly changed quite a bit eventually i think i got there first and it's got to be one of the few times where i've got got there first because i'm face blind and i don't recognize people and that's fine but i do work from clues and cues and you told me you were moving back to oxford we did the whole thing it was a very pitter patter chat and you said you're moving back to oxford and i was like oh we're in oxford I said, I think I spent three lovely years there. And you said, oh, me too. And I was like, oh, no, really? Which college? Which is basically code for I went to Oxford um, or I went to Cambridge. And then you said, oh, actually, I was at the Ruskin doing fine art. And I was like, no way. <laughs> when were you there? And it's a really, there's only like 22 people in a year. There so there's are. no way you cannot know no, someone. No, you have to. You yeah. know them and everyone above and below you. It's like, it's not a thing. You can't not know that. So, yeah, it was, I was like, oh my god and then my brain was like oh that's Rachel like <laughs> yeah and um, my brain was still stuck yeah which was hilarious you, I think you were quite enjoying this moment I was enjoying it yeah I know because you let it sit and I remember the air hostess coming along mm-hmm. and she asked some ridiculous question and then I was sitting there going I know I really know this person mm. and then you were kind enough to relieve me of I don't it's know if it was confusion enough. and you said you knew me as Tom mm. and I was like six foot two like really handsome beer swigging Tom <laughs> is in the cream suit sitting next to me like you won't believe how many people are now googling <laughs> <laughs> and you know the weirdest thing that happened my mind placed you in a group of men like mm. in your year you had quite a group of masculine men who were very flirtatious to be honest with the women and so my mind was like going through this whole sounds highly believable yeah and then what I found amazing was that you know what usually is a very long flight we literally spoke for 14 (laughs) hours and you told me it evaporated right it was really extraordinary it was a really extraordinary flight it's very strange when you find yourself in that moment of going, oh, I'm completely open to this person. And I have quite a lot to tell them. Mm. So we talked a lot. You talked to quite a bit, and we spoke about this on the plane, actually, about how you, one of the early things you felt was that you had a female perspective, a female lens on things. Where did that begin? Was that a university or was that early? And what does that even mean? Mm. If you could have asked me where I'd rather have been, I went to a boys' school. So I went to a boys' grammar school, not the road was the girls' school. And the second we were allowed to go to the girls' school, like, I wasn't studying there, but that's where I, went, that's where I was and that's where I wanted to be. Um, which, again, at the time just felt normal because I had no idea. We, we, I grew up during Section 28. We were not taught about homosexuality. We were not, it was not a word. Mm. Um, and we certainly, the idea of, like, trans identities was not a thing. Um, I was just talking in New York on, to a wonderful designer called Debbie Millman, and we were talking mm. who's just come out as gay, like, and she's in... Has she? Yeah. Really? Yes, Debbie Millman just came up. <laughs> so, Debbie. Um, and, it's, and it's a wonderful moment because, mm. actually, she's in a fantastic relationship with Roxanne Gay, and it's like, and it's just a wonderful moment to be able to celebrate her, and finally... But we were talking on our podcast, and... Uh, very frankly about the, the sense of shame that you that I still feel that she still feels and how wonderful it is to watch a generation for whom that shame doesn't really exist but how we're not able to to 
we can see that it's okay, but we can't learn the lessons that somehow we've managed to teach them, which mm. is that this is okay. B but you yourself, it's okay for them. For you yourself, you will always carry everything that kept you in the closet for 40 or 50 years. That's not something you can just let go. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 very difficult to kind of dissect because it's not a thing. Like, no one thinks thinks in a female way, a feminine way, or thinks in a male way. It's just a sense of belonging, like, just a sense of knowing, knowing sort of knowing your people or not knowing your people or knowing that you feel other and feel different and feel separate, knowing that you, you can't have the conversations that you want because they don't see the person... Your friends don't see another woman. It's one of the most remarkable things about transition is just the, how the calibre of conversation and, and the content of conversation shifts the second you allow them to see you as a woman. Like, you don't have to transition. You just have to kind of make that statement. And it's extraordinary how how that was what I never had and, and felt like I had spent my life very conscious that I was a, I was not privy to that sort of connection um, and it, it was it just actually got to a point where that wasn't something I could do anymore so I couldn't pretend to do the boy thing however much it would have helped everyone out if I could One of the things that struck me about that conversation on the plane was I don't think I ever would have had that conversation with Tom No you wouldn't I have one person who, who wrote to me on Facebook saying we worked together and we used to get drunk together a lot like in the 90s and I'm really glad you finally found your way now mm. and I was like I have no idea what you're talking about she was like well we were quite drunk <laughs> but we used to have conversations about this topic It was she was someone that I confided to mm. and I have no recollection of it no recollection of it as far as I was aware I hadn't told anyone ever it was, a, it was something that I had never spoken to anyone about because there were so many things that I'm trying to mask that you can't allow for that um, you can't allow that mask to drop that's not going to happen and that means you can't allow it to be you can't allow it allow suggestions of it you're always going to be more masculine after I got through my like teens where you know and we self-medicate to an extent all of us um, which were very you know, and my childhood was very genderless. It was like the seventies, and my parents were brought us up in a. It was never a big thing. Mm. Um, gender has never been a significant part of my life. And it wasn't until I got to 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 university that I discovered quite how, which is quite how formalized it can be, mm. and went out with the kind of people that wanted it to be formalized, who were uncomfortable with the fact that I also liked guides. So that had to go. Um, very quickly so that went into the closet really fast um, so much so that my gay friends were not privy to that because I didn't want that mudging these relationships and then how to perform as a guy which I could do because I'd been doing it all my life like I'd been captain of the rugby team I was the head boy You're like I can do the boy things you were head boy and like head of the rugby team right yes. like this <laughs> These are pretty masculine things. I know, but like, if you're going to do something, you should kind of do it as well as you can, right? Do you think you were aware that you went out and picked those things because it 
help. I didn't try to be either of those. No, I don't want to be those things. I didn't so even. Why want did to be you those do things. them? Um, because it's a good mask. You realize how many trans people are in the army? How many trans women are yeah. in the, the army? Yeah. It's a very very effective mask, and the number of trans men that are in the army is also a similar mask in that you can actually express yourself in a masculine macho way without people questioning your femininity without people kind of saying you're not being ladylike so this is why the armed this is why this whole trans in the military thing is so difficult is that it sort of actually is a very very liberating space for trans men who don't want to come out and it's also a strangely kind of liberating place for closeted trans women who want to prove to themselves and society and everyone around them that actually no they really are guys and that cannot be in doubt because the thing about fear is that your main fear is that you will be found out it's not that you are that mm. it's that you will be found out that you will be shamed and that you will be as they are being excommunicated from the communities that they they love and the army and the armed forces and that they aren't allowed to be who they are and they're not allowed to express themselves so it's a much more complicated thing than it's ever presented as which is like should you have like qu basically queers queer queer guys who are a bit ooh mm. in and think they're women in in the armed services it's like that's really not what it is <laughs> but it's the same for the other things so yeah i was captain of the rugby team and i wasn't very good at the other parts of the rugby stuff partly for other problems it's like i'm face blind so i, I don't recognize people i wouldn't recognize the people on my team let alone <laughs> on the opposition team um, before or after games so team sports were always like this weird challenge that I was totally unaware of which is that normally people know who they're playing with and know who's on their team but when people get changed into their kit and then get changed out of their kit you're like I don't know and your head's often down in rugby as well. Yes, your yeah. head's down. Like, mainly, I tell you one thing I did used to enjoy. I used to enjoy playing. I used to enjoy hitting people really hard with my shoulder. That was, like, the number one thing that's... And I'm sure every woman can identify with that. Like, something you would actually quite like to do every now and again is just assert yourself physically on a situation. Um, and it is actually really extraordinarily liberating. <laughs> so I did like that. But the rest of it, like... I got taken out of ballet when I was four and, and made to play rugby. And, and I, that's not a bad thing. That's mm. just what well, my sister came to. Mm. Like, she played rugby up until she was 11 or 12, and then they stopped her because, because. Do you find with people when you're honest about these masks and the fear of being found out that they open up in a way that is quite extraordinary? Mm -hmm. Everyone does. Everyone is masking. Everyone has identities. Everyone has spaces in which they play roles. One of the things that's most interesting is for me is that I have dissociative disorder, so I actually don't have a lot of cross-memory between different parts that I play. Do you play. want to just explain what that is? Yeah, like um, in common parlance, you'd call it multiple personality disorder. But it's not multiple personality disorder, which is why they changed the name to dissociative identity disorder. Um, and it's the only, again, it's one of those things where you really don't want to be on, um, like, screen. You don't want that to be portrayed. It's very much like the, the trans thing. It's like, if you look at how it is portrayed in the media, these things are not good. But yeah, I have... I, I have a dissociative identity disorder and that means that all of those roles that we play mine are quite fractured and they don't share memories across those roles so we have a sense of we and we talk about the plural of us and we talk about others and 
Um, That's where the we comes from. Have you, yeah. When you refer to Yeah, when we. I refer to we, like the royal we. Yeah. <laughs> which I always have. Yeah. And always have. And it's been an amazing thing to go, oh, that's a thing. I'm not just being pretentious. <laughs> and there's and multiple Yeah, self. be allowed to, allowed to acknowledge that those, those voices, which can be really problematic, and especially because they conflict a lot. Mm. Um, and, and also because whoever's fronting often, there's not, you don't have any sense of others, of, of what we want. Mm. So it's very hard to be, to have... Um, that thing about not knowing it's like it's very hard to have consent even with what you know mm. like you think you want to do because i know that we don't have universal consent we have like this idea of active consent of whoever is in front makes decisions and that's worked fine so far it's like a life skill right mm. it's actually like superpower it's mm. what keeps you alive through trauma mm. that's why it exists and the more people understand about that and understand that they just aren't axe murderer that's not a thing <laughs> Mm. that trope all tropes to do with it are kind of obscene mm. and actually if you wanted it's more like rather than Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde it's more like Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll's twin brother who are basically identical but have got a different opinion on whether Theresa May should have resigned like it's kind of about as advanced as it gets it's like we it's very very subtle and it took it took a very long time for a partner of mine to to working with my psychs and therapists to allow me to understand that I presented a number of realities all of which are different from each other um, and that that I wasn't aware of that mm. so it was that was quite challenging <laughs> but you know the, there's two things I find absolutely staggering about your story and the narrative the first is that you've described this moment and I don't even know how to describe this, whether it's that you formally wanted to become a woman or that, mm -hmm. like a tax return coming. It was very much like a tax return. That's kind of why I liked that metaphor. It's like, oh, I did not have any say in it. Right. It arrived. That moment arrived. And the, the, the person, the identity that, that I'd been working with for so long, it's called Tom. And there's a couple of, you know, we generally work with Tom because it's fine it's the name my parents gave me like they were not ready for that there was a lot of moments in my life at which we have been ready for that most notably like 10 years before when the actually when the GRC first went through when the when the um, GRA the Gender Recognition Act that everyone is a little bit talkative about at the moment which does need re-evaluating but it was a very it was a massive moment and I remember at that point having this realization knowing and in retrospect knowing doing my research working out what was going to happen and then somehow flipping back into another role that I had no awareness of that like I had no no recollection of that happening at all and no recollection of ever feeling like that I was still aware that that there were certain needs that, that were never going to be met by who I was, but at the same time I was also like very happily in a relationship and we had children and that was and it was a wonderful thing. And, you know, this moment... Because you were married and yeah, you had two, two kids? Two children. Yeah. Um, I still have the children. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and we have a good relationship. Mm. I think she's an amazing woman, actually, and that's helpful because it could have been so much worse. The other thing that I find really hard, honestly, to get my head around was the decision 
and I don't know if you describe it in this way, but to come out the Sydney Writers Festival. Oh yeah. In such a public forum. So could you just tell me, like, how did you make that decision? Like, had you told your family? Everyone knew. Yeah, everyone knew. Yeah. Like that was like a year and a. It was a long time. Yeah. Um, one of the other things about that decision is like you're presenting it takes a really long time to even get to a point where you're beginning to it's like that bit of when you announce that you're pregnant and you you want to you definitely want to get there before you show but you also kind of don't want to really tell people until you until you're ready so how do you do that like what point do you do that and how do you reach as many people as possible so um and how do you reach that com- that group? So it was really just a broadcast way of dealing with the fact that I had a very public profile and as Tom. I mean, I was giving a talk at the Writers' Festival and it was about, well, it became about doubt mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to kind of talk to that notion that you do not know and that we don't know. Like, I did not know. I was in ignorance about being faceplanted. I was in ignorance about having a dissociative disorder. I was in ignorance about being trans up until the moment that I knew. And any science is exactly the same. We are in complete ignorance until we know. Um, and philosophy is the same. We are in complete ignorance. Like, and this is the oldest kind of notion ever, which is that until we know otherwise, mathematics has all these beautiful examples of not knowing until we know. You can't just work them out. The rules are not there so that everything lays itself out. Sometimes you have to kind of have these moments where, like, a point of clarity where someone can explain to you the framework or the structure. And sometimes they have to fundamentally shift structures. Mm. You know, whenever I talk about inclusion or diversity, it's like, yeah, it's like the way in which people just want it to exist, and it, it doesn't exist. You have, to, you have to fundamentally shift your structure. You have to, you have to change. Mm in order to allow this to be true. So all of these things have led to a very nuanced and I find very helpful approach towards truth and doubt. I've noticed there's something you do around, usually around 15 minutes in to giving a talk. I can't remember the exact words, but I'm, I'm transgender. And for those of you who haven't noticed, thank you. And I've always wondered if that moment is for you or whether that moment is for the audience. It's changing. It's been an evolving thing. Like, so to begin with, it was very much like a line of, oh, it's terrible. I used to go, now you may, may have noticed that I'm trans. Um, and if you hadn't noticed, it's probably time to put your phone down. <laughs> Later on, it became, um, if you haven't noticed, then thank you. <laughs> Bless you. I'm really pleased that you haven't noticed. As I began to get a certain passing privilege. And now I have a very funny moment where I put up two photos of me. And basically I go, I love to show these two photos because I look fantastic in both of them. <laughs> Um, and then it's a point of going, here's me as a very kind of, like, you know, you said handsome, which is very sweet of you. you um, everyone fancied you. That's not but, true. Don't tell me no, that now. No, 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 it's, this is it's 20 just, years too late. Can I just clear? Nothing <laughs> happened between the two of us. <laughs> you were very popular. <laughs> yeah, so there's this photo of me as a white, stubbly kind of creative director, exactly the way I should be, because... I know how to play a role. And then there's this photo of me, and I'm now getting to the point where it's like, this this woman who I never thought I could possibly be. And the main reason I, I do that stop is partly to go, okay, this is not your average talk, and also, this is not about me being trans. So right at the moment, 
it's a lovely segue into lots of things. So I really like talking about data. So that idea that this is somehow a representative data sample for my transition is completely inaccurate. And then going on to show um, this lovely little train of badges, like getting my security badge changed at Google. So there's a very funny train and of badges. And your passport now? Oh, yeah, no, I've had all of those. Yeah. I mean, I, everything has changed apart from the UK banks who seem to be strangely myopic about the process. No, but they're like, they're, there's like six or seven badges that I had during my time at Google, which also allows me to talk about how I went in to do PowerPoint work. Like, it's, it's a lovely way of talking mm. about how you, you go on journeys. And even then you can say, and this data set is not full. This is just a slightly more fleshed out data set. And then we can talk a lot about how those biases creep into data sets when we think that there is a completion, like there is some sense of totality to a quorum or like that, that that's not a thing. Mm. <laughs> so you can't ever have enough information to give a truth. This is half the problem with the simulation model is like the amount of information is, is exponential. Otherwise you would never have, things would have a, a, a finite point of divisibility. So even as a, even as a curve, it's like you can only show an approximation of my journey. So that's one nice thing. And then the other one is like, as a career thing, it's like, you do not know what's going to happen to you in your life. Here's what happened. I was at a very low ebb and I went to work for a large American company making PowerPoint and I'd never made PowerPoint. So I was like, oh. <laughs> lied to get the job. <laughs> um. <laughs> but I want just going back, I wonder if you'll get to a point where you won't need that on stage. I should do, right? I mean, it's, it's definitely a prop. And I just did one where I moved it right the way down and didn't do that like little comfort spiel when you come on stage where you know where you're going for the first five minutes so you don't need to think and just actually started kind of cold about structure I've got to, I'm very interested in structure and information mm. structures and, and, and structures throughout society but then uh, later on it became it becomes useful as a way of personalizing mm. this narrative and it's it's quite hard for me not to bring things back into my per as with this discussion it's hard not to kind of bring things back into my personal narrative partly because i want to put in people's faces that actually the person they've been listening to for half an hour i just got wonderfully misgendered the other day by a woman who came up to me afterwards and says yes that was wonderful i really enjoyed it i really enjoyed it and then somehow managed to segue into the third person to describe how he had had a point and i was like how have you, how and why has your brain done this yeah. like you don't know me and i do not present as a guy yeah um, and i just told you that piece of information so why have you done that with your brain and i'm like my friend because this happens my friend um was like as an ally what should i do should i get involved and point out the mistake and i was like well there's two options you can either point out the mistake and have a fight about something they didn't even realize they did or you can just kind of facepalm and hope to god that they go home and go later on go oh my god i did that terrible thing but i i don't think there's you know, all that's why we're doing it. It's because they need to know that they were watching a trans woman. They need to know that these conversations um, are not as black and white as they think. They need to understand that, that there is... That the, the, the most helpful thing you can say to a young person is that you don't know, that, you, that no one really knows, mm. and that what we are doing is working our way through. It's like you will construct your realities, but you are, constru you are constructing them. You're building these things. It's not like there's a truth that you have to know and that mm. there's a kind of ladder that you have to climb. There's an awful lot to be gained from just exploring and playing and 
testing. Um, I think we spoke about this on the plane because we were given one of those visa forms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think we had a laugh because it was like, what do you do? And (laughs) I hate that box, right? And I think we were talking about all the funny things we've ever put on that form. And I always put three things on that form just to make a point of why do you need me to be something? Mm -hmm. But that is prevalent everywhere. This need, even that anecdote you said, like there's got to be some kind of box that helps me understand Mm -hmm. who you are yeah to help me through what do you what do you put in that box oh i put designer you do put designer. yeah but it's so funny because i'm like the world's worst designer i mean the only thing my team will let me design are the t-shirts and actually they've stopped letting me do that so <laughs> i don't design anything i'm rubbish at that i'm pretty much rubbish at all the things i've tried to do but i do find that labels thing again nuanced because there are moments when the label is incredibly valuable Mm. like incredibly valuable in allowing you a structure allowing you a framework to understand what is happening in the world and and how you relate to it autism is incredibly valuable label for people who have a diagnosis and you want that diagnosis because it clarifies that that you're not broken so it's very problematic when people then do suggest that perhaps you're broken um but as an autistic person you want to know that but actually, the most terrifying thing is, first of all, having to be diagnosed. It was the same with the gender stuff. It's like having the, the Gender Recognition Council have approved your, your... Like, they agree. These strangers agree that you are suffer from gender dysphoria and that you are trans and you can present as a woman. So there was a very strange process. One way you have to hand over autonomy over you to an expert who will mm. tell you, who will label you. And then that is a very useful... I think those labels can be incredibly helpful. But then you go out into the world and those labels become incredibly unhelpful because other people take those boxes, like we started with the idea of being, you know, a mentally ill trans woman, which is Mm. completely accurate. Mm. Um, But if that comes up in court, I think we all know that no one's trusting that witness. Yeah. And that's tragic, right? So those labels can also be very damaging and stigmatizing and, and you get into the stigma and like that whole kind of notion of sociology where why societies use stigma um, and, and why it exists. And having gone from presenting as a very non-stigmatized, like straight white male, to a hugely stigmatized kind of other has been utterly fascinating for me. Mm. I just wanted to ask you two questions What's your advice to people in terms of how we all can get better at coping with uncertainty? It, it's not like we're not nervous. It's not a trite thing. It's just about acknowledging the truth of the situation, which is you don't know. Like, mm. You might want to tell yourself you do, but you really don't. Um, and, and it is a very useful, for me, it's, a very, it's like the people who like looking up at the stars and going, it's an enormous solar system and it's an enormous universe and it's you know and we are just stardust and it's like yeah now act like it Mm. um in other words just don't take it so seriously and that is probably the only way that i mean i'm a terrible person to talk about survival because it's a struggle for me for a lot of different reasons um and this is a survival mechanism which is understanding that um there's not a kind of structured solution no one is keeping a list no one cares um and no one's going to judge me at the end of it having a good value system that you believe in and that you that you feel comfortable with is much more powerful than having some sense of righteousness Mm. um which is often masqueraded as a value system but it's a very different thing that's a mask 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I think about trust, and so many trust issues come from the fact that people are really frightened of that uncertainty. Mm -hmm. um, and as a, Yeah, they, they are. They are frightened. It is fear. And wh why do you think it's fear? Um, because no one can see that no one else knows. Like, we don't share that fear. It's Again, you want to come back to the gender thing? There was a moment as um, when one's accepted as... as a part of a, a a a tribe where you will you will or acknowledge when we sat down next to each other we were open mm. and we shared things um because we weren't afraid that those things would be used against us that those insecurities would be used against us that that anxiety would be used against us that those truths of how you see the world would be used against you and especially at the moment as we see people's perspectives on reality which they call a truth like literally being weaponized against each other, it becomes more and more prevalent to bunker down mm. and to, to hold hard to your truths and to deny the validity of other truths, even though we know that actually these, are, these things are just perspectives on the same information. So, yeah, how you get past that fear is really hard. It's about communication and it is about trust. But if you start with the premise that the fear is preventing trust, then... We don't really have anywhere to go. We have to find a way to trust despite the fear. Mm. It's not philosophy. It's just observational. <laughs> just as a last question, are there any areas of your life where you still find it hard to say, I don't know? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned it, but my, my brain works in quite funny ways, so I'm not really sure ever whether I, like, someone was asking me for coincidences the other day and for some yeah. reason your story did not occur to me, despite the fact that it was like the most insane coincidence that we were sat next to each other on the plane. I woke up this morning and had com no idea what I was doing today. So that thing of, of like, understanding my, my life in... I think I've never really, never really been completely confident that everyone else wasn't the same way, but it seems like people would have some idea of things that they are confident about and not confident about. Whereas I kind of deal with everything in the moment. So there were probably things where I'm very confident. And I mean, I'm just trying to think of typical things like menus or directions. Speaking. Yeah, speaking. Um, no, I, I don't know what I'm going to say. I just know that it will be fine. That's the most powerful. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that, that really It'll is where fine. you can let go. But yeah. you, you know, you sort of have the confidence and faith in yourself that you can push through that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when you're right at the edge of, of like, you're playing. You're, you're comfortable in your space. That's the place everyone should be aiming for, whatever it is that they do. And it helps if you enjoy it. Mm. Well, I hope that I'm going to get on a plane and you will be sitting next to me for the next 14 hours because <laughs> I've never had such a good plane partner. Aww. And you did look stunning in the cream suit and I did not look cool I was wearing cool shoes because I always like cool shoes yeah. but um, just for the record thank you so much it's I could talk for hours so mm. it's hard to actually end the conversation but thank you T thank you my conversation with T made me think hard about something about how difficult it can be to say three little words out loud I don't know it's a mission that can be scary at the best of times to say to our friends or our colleagues or even to ourselves 
because for some reason we're told it suggests we're a bit incompetent or even weak. I find it remarkable that such a simple and human admission carries so much reluctance and fear. Why don't we trust ourselves to express doubt, whether it be around our gender, ideas or beliefs? What T describes so well is that it doesn't mean that we failed in some way or fallen short of our own or other people's expectations. Far from it. It's in this place of uncertainty and vulnerability that the best discoveries about ourselves, others and the world can happen. In fact, it's the very essence of what trust is. That's it for today. I'm Rachel Botsman. I hope the show has got you thinking a bit differently about trust. If you've liked it, please go on to iTunes and share a review. The theme music to this podcast is called Happy Life and it's by Reggie. The show is produced and edited by Matt Hill from Rethink Audio and has been beautifully researched by Phoebe Adler-Ryan. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.